Hello and welcome to the Hoover Institution's 2019 Pasadena Conference. I'm Chris Dower, Hoover's Director of Marketing and Strategic Communications. Our speaker in this podcast is Adam White, a research fellow at the Hoover Institution. The title of his talk is Brett Kavanaugh, John Roberts, and the Future of the Supreme Court. And it was recorded on January 30th, 2019. No, it's a real pleasure to be here. Um, in no small part because it's nice not to be in Washington, D.C. right now uh, where my kids are shoveling our driveway. Um, although it could be worse, uh, as, as Colin mentioned, I'm originally from Iowa where in the last few weeks they've gotten 26 inches of snow. I checked just a moment ago and uh, it's 15 degrees below, 36 below if you count the wind chill, which really reminds us, I grew up near Herbert Hoover's birthplace and it reminds us that his first real act of genius was leaving, Washington, or leaving Iowa and coming to California. Um, but it is, it's a genuine pleasure to always come here to talk with Hoover audiences about the state of the Supreme Court. Had a chance to talk about this last summer at the board meeting at Stanford. I know some of you were there. It was a well-timed moment to talk about the state of the Supreme Court because two days before that meeting, oops, need to turn it on. Two days before that meeting was this, President Trump's nomination of Brett Kavanaugh to uh, serve on the United States Supreme Court, replacing California's own Justice Anthony Kennedy. So I spoke at the board meeting two days after this and tried to offer some thoughts both on Kennedy's legacy and on what I hoped would be Judge or Justice Kavanaugh's role on the Supreme Court. And at the time, so around July 10th, 11th, I made a prediction for the audience. I said that given the state of American politics, given the state of the Supreme Court, and given the justice that Kavanaugh was called to replace, Anthony Kennedy, the swing justice on the court, that we should prepare for the ugliest Supreme Court confirmation hearing we've ever seen. And I said, it seems a little crazy to say that, having lived through Robert Bork, having lived through Clarence Thomas, but I said, the hydraulic forces surrounding the court are such that it's impossible for this to be an easy confirmation. A few, weeks, a few days later, in speaking with reporters about the upcoming confirmation fight, they all said, what should you expect during the hearings? And I said, don't expect much during the hearings. I said, all the real action is going to happen after the hearings. I said, the politics of this are such that Senator Grassley, by the way, I was called to testify in these hearings. My major qualification for testifying has nothing to do with the administrative law. It has everything to do with the fact that I'm from Iowa, and so is Senator Grassley. Uh, I'm not kidding. He invited my parents. They had them backstage, like taking photos and putting on social media. Um, so anyway, um, where was I? I said to the reporters, I said, the most interesting things will happen after the real hearings because Senator Grassley is going to write, run a tight ship. Susan Collins will come out of these hearings feeling comfortable. And the Democrats are going to have to explode a grenade after the hearings in order to unsettle Susan Collins. I have to admit, by about Labor Day, I was thinking, man, I got those wrong. Smooth sailing, no controversies, no hint of anything scandalous to come. Um, Turned out I was right. It's better to be lucky than good. And I would tell you about all my wrong predictions, too, but Colin is limiting me to an hour. So I have to just stick with the easy part, the, the, the predictions I got right. I will say uh, the Kavanaugh hearings, I think, mark a real change in future confirmation hearings. We now, and it has to do with the, with, with the point about the, the original hearings going so smoothly. I think 
from here on out, we should treat the confirmation hearings for a Supreme Court justice as sort of the prelude to the real show. They're now so carefully organized, um, so well-planned by whichever party is in the majority, that it's really impossible to shake things up at the, at the original hearing itself. It's going to be interesting now to go into these hearings now with everybody wondering, well, or saying, I can't wait for the hearings to end so the real action can start. But I generally think that's probably the future of Supreme Court confirmation hearings, for better and for worse. Now, as I said at the time, I thought Kavanaugh was a great pick. I still do. I was happy to testify in his favor on questions about Kavanaugh's approach to the administrative state, which is an increasing part of the Supreme Court's docket. And he's the second of two great picks by President Trump. On the left, Judge Kavanaugh. On the right, uh, Justice Neil Gorsuch, President Trump's first pick, the one that he appointed in early 2017 to fill the Scalia seat that had gone vacant uh, through the year. 2016. Kavanaugh and Gorsuch have a lot in common, uh, not just the fact um, that they've been appointed by President Trump or the fact that they both clerked for Justice Anthony Kennedy. Um, they both came out of the same generation of young conservative judges who grew up really educated by Scalia and Clarence Thomas and that original generation of modern conservative judges. The ones that were appointed by President George W. Bush, Roberts and Alito, uh, they really came up through law school too early to be educated in the shadow of Scalia and Thomas. Kavanaugh and Gorsuch are the first of a parade of judges who really learn from the example of Justice Scalia and Thomas on the bench. It's a very important uh, sort of generational shift in the court. Another thing they have in common, and this came up a lot at both their confirmation hearings, is both of them are focused first and foremost on the administrative state and the role of the courts in overseeing both the work that agencies do and the relationship between the agencies in Congress and the agencies and the president. All of those questions, some long settled doctrines from the 1930s or more recently the 1980s, are being sort of re-questioned. There's old questions that are being re-raised and new questions that are being asked. A lot of my work at George Mason University is focused on those and my work at the Hoover Institution as well. But Kavanaugh and Gorsuch were probably the generation's two leading thinkers on these questions about the courts and the administrative state, which is why I think both of them were picked for this court at this particular moment in time. They don't agree on everything, and I'll get back to that towards the end of my talks. So this is the Roberts court. Uh, what's missing? Well, as I mentioned, Justice Anthony Kennedy. Uh, so you now have Roberts, let me see if I do this right, flanked by the senior most justice, Clarence Thomas, Ruth Bader Ginsburg, we'll get back to her in a second, uh, and Trump's picks in the back. But it truly is the Roberts Court for the first time. We always name the Supreme Court as it stands under, we always name it after its Chief Justice, the Rehnquist Court, the Warren Court, the John Marshall Court. But it hasn't truly been uh, Ro the Roberts Court until now, because for the first decade plus of Roberts' time on the court, the court's work was really controlled by Justice O'Connor, uh, and then Anthony, uh, Justice Anthony Kennedy, who we knew as the swing justices, the one in the middle that was in a position to swing the court one way or another uh, from case to case. Who's the swing justice now? Well, it's that man right there in the middle. In case you can't see him, here he is. Why is he smiling? Well, he's smiling because for the first time, I'm just projecting here, but let's, let's pretend. The reason why he's smiling or he has reason to smile is that for the very first time, this truly is the Roberts court and not the Kennedy court. What does that mean? Well, Chief Justice Roberts, he's a conservative, although he's disappointed conservatives from time to time in a couple of major cases involving the Affordable Care Act. His approach is pretty much what he advertised at his own confirmation hearing in 2005. Namely, he likes to take things step by step, 
move, move precedents a little bit at a time, try to work within existing precedent when possible before overturning it. He's what we call a textualist. He begins with the text of the Constitution, the text of the law. It's a good place to start when you're interpreting the law, but believe me, not enough judges do it. But Roberts does. What distinguished Roberts from, say, Clarence Thomas, and maybe even Scalia, was that Roberts seemed more comfortable to try to interpret the text with an eye to the existing precedents and overturn precedent as a last resort, not a first resort. Another thing that Roberts said at his confirmation hearings, which was more or less borne out to be true, is he likes to build consensus. He would rather have a seven to two, a seven to two, uh, sorry, there's nine justices on the court, so a seven to two majority opinion on a narrow ruling rather than a five four closely divided court on a broad ruling. He likes to look for consensus where possible, and he's achieved a lot of consensus, especially by reaching across the aisle to get Justice Kagan, uh, a, a, an Obama appointee, and Justice Breyer, a Clinton appointee, where possible. He's not afraid to go with a 5-4 opinion, but his first option tends to be go slow and steady, small doctrinal shifts by reaching across the aisle and trying to build as much of a majority as he can. Now, he has, has two sort of infamous opinions among conservatives, both with respect to the Affordable Care Act. In the first challenge to the Obamacare's uh, individual mandate, Roberts joined the, 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 the liberals on the court to say that, that the individual mandate was constitutional, that it was a tax. And then a few years later, in a much more new uh, uh, esoteric technical regulatory opinion, he upheld uh, the Obamacare uh, subsidies for some insurance uh, markets. It wasn't clear that this was actually correct under the statute. He sort of stretched the statute more than I would have liked him to. But in general, I think Roberts is doing a pretty good job. He's very closely attuned to the court's history and the court's institutional interests. Uh, I wrote a piece for the Weekly Standard. Uh, Colin said I write for the Weekly Standard. It's now more accurate to say I wrote for the Weekly Standard since it doesn't exist anymore. Um, but uh, I wrote a, a long, long piece on Roberts for his 10th anniversary, trying to understand how he sees uh, three things. First, the federal government's role in our country. Second, the Supreme Court's role in our federal government. And third, the Chief Justice's role in the Supreme Court. It's like little, uh, Russian nesting dolls. Um, but I, I think he takes his job very seriously, and it'll be very fascinating to watch him run the court uh, for the time being. In fact, that's why my next major uh, scholarly project, hopefully a book, is a study of Chief Justice Roberts and his predecessors and the Chief Justices about the institutional role of the Chief Justice, a job that really uniquely stands at the intersection of law and politics and statesmanship, unlike any other position in the federal government, even more so than, say, um, the, the presidency. Okay, but first, back to what President Trump is doing with the courts. He's really renovating them. And I'll walk through this slowly. I'm sorry if the text is a little small for the screen, but I just wanted to illustrate how much of a change he's already, President Trump has already had on the federal courts, the lower courts, not just those two Supreme Court appointees, but focusing on the federal trial courts, we call them the district courts, and the federal appellate courts, which we call the circuit courts. There are 179 circuit judges in the country, 667 district judges in the country. So far, President Trump has appointed 30 appellate judges, so 17, he's already replaced 17% of the federal appellate judges in the country, and a much smaller number, but also significant, he's already replaced 8% of all the federal trial judges in the country, 53 of them. So, so far, he's overhauled about 10% of the federal judiciary. He has some nominations that are waiting to be confirmed by the Senate. 
um, nine pending nominations. When they're all confirmed, he'll, he will have changed 22% uh, of the circuit courts. He has 43 district court nominations pending right now. So pretty soon, hopefully, he will have almost doubled the number of federal trial courts he's put on the court. Now, if you take a further step back and you just look at all the vacant seats, you know, he has nine pending nominations for vacant circuit seats, but there's actually 12 vacancies. If he were to fill all 12 of the current vacancies, he would overturn, it would have changed 23% of the appellate judges in the country, 26% of the trial judges in the country, and finally, we know from all these statistics are from the, uh, the federal, federal court system. We know that there are three more appellate vacancies coming soon, 17 more uh, trial judge vacancies coming soon. So if President Trump were to fill, with, with Senator McConnell and the Senate were to fill all of these coming vacancies, all the current vacancies, he would uh, have changed 25% of the federal appellate judges and 29% of the um, trial judges. Now, I'm not nearly as nimble with numbers as the previous speaker, Mr. Cochran, so let me put it in a simpler way, borrowing from the New York Times, just to give you a sense of how fast uh, President Trump is outpacing, I said, recent precedent. It's a lame pun. I mean, recent presidents. Uh, but you can see, and this is just looking last summer at uh, appellate seats, so not the trial judges, but those intermediate judges who are so important, they decide they are the final decision maker for every case that doesn't get to the Supreme Court, which is to say the final decision maker for almost every case. You can see here President Trump at a year and a half into his first term, 24 appellate judges, far outpacing President Obama, even President George W. Bush, whose administration was focused a lot on filling judge seats, right? It was the first presidency to really work with the Federalist Society on judicial nominations, President Trump is totally outpacing all of them. He's having a much faster and a much more significant effect on the federal judiciary than any previous president. And in part that's because, well, it's a few things. First of all, it's because of the Federal Society, which has had such a role in advising President Trump on judicial nominations. The Federal Society is a now 30, 30 plus year old organization. It's a nationwide membership organization based in Washington that was founded by Justice Scalia, Judge Bork, back when they were law professors, and a new generation of law students and lawyers who wanted to reform the conservative way of thinking about judges, take very seriously um, constitutional text, take very seriously judicial restraint, and so on. Today, they are the president's and the White House Counsel's Office top advisors on judicial nominations. And some really, really, the reason why we get, are getting so many good picks, which I'll get back to in a second, is in part because of the Federal Society's effect. But as the recent White House counsel, uh, Don McGahn, liked to say, the Trump administration didn't outsource uh, judicial nominations. In a way, McGahn, like a joke, he'd say, we've actually insourced it. We've taken it from the Justice Department and brought it into the White House counsel's office to make it even more closely tied to the president and the president's energy Hamilton liked to say energy in the executive, making this a central White House priority, not something you farm out to the Justice Department. So the second reason why there's been so much focus on judicial nominations is this is something that's now being run out of the White House Counsel's Office rather than out of a, the, um, the Office of Legal Policy in the Justice Department. So that's had a good effect. But the other person we have to thank for all of this is Harry Reid, and I'm, I'm serious, actually. Uh, late in President Obama's second term, Harry Reid, eager to see some uh, judges appointed to the D.C. Circuit, changed Senate rules to eliminate the filibuster for judicial appointments, which means the easiest thing to do now in the Senate is confirm judges. It's even easier than confirming executive branch 
appointments uh, because of all the help from the Federal Society and the unified conservative approach on judges. There's much less disagreement among uh, Republicans and conservatives over what's a good judge rather than what's a good appointee to this or that, that uh, agency. So you have this energy that can move through the Senate uh, and Senator McConnell then has made it his highest priority to confirm judges. And what's important isn't just the numbers, it's the people. And I wanted to highlight four examples. These are four recent appointees to the Federal Courts of Appeals who I think are going to be uh, very important for a long time to come. And three of them, in fact, are on President Trump's uh, most recent shortlist for the next Supreme Court pick. But I'll start with the one who's not. He's the newest on the court. This is Andrew Oldham. He was just appointed to the U.S. Court of Appeals for the Fifth Circuit in Texas. He is quite possibly the sharpest um, young judge in the country. He, he won't be, he's, he's too new to be appointed to the court by, by President Trump. I guarantee you he will be on the list uh, for the next Republican president's Supreme Court picks. He is uh, a veteran of Texas government. He was in the, he, argue, he helped argue Supreme Court cases for the state of Texas, then worked for the Texas governor, worked in the federal, um, the U.S. Department of Justice, and he's one of his generation's leading constitutional thinkers. Next to him on the same court, the Fifth Circuit in Texas, is Don Willett. Don is the leading libertarian judge of his generation. He was on the Texas Supreme Court. He was a big user of Twitter, actually, which he's like the one person to ever use Twitter successfully. Um, <laughs> he, he, he really raised his profile with Twitter. Uh, the political columnist George Will is a huge fan of his work. I'd, I'd, I'd classify Andy as more of a Scalia type, judicial restraint. Uh, Willett is much more of the Clarence Thomas mold, much more energetic in terms of overturning precedents he disagrees with and really infusing uh, the interpretation of the Constitution with, uh, with natural law and with an, a libertarian perspective on natural law. So he too is a leading judge already on President Trump's Supreme Court list. In the lower left-hand corner, I couldn't find a picture of him with a name tag. That's Patrick Willett. He's on President Trump's Supreme Court list, even though he's only on the federal trial, trial courts. President Trump appointed him to the, uh, the trial court in Oklahoma after Patrick's record of success as the Solicitor General for Oklahoma, arguing appellate and constitutional, and even one Supreme Court case where he got yelled at by Justice Sotomayor for several minutes, so much so that Chief Justice Roberts actually gave him extra time to make up for all the time. It was a death penalty case that uh, Oklahoma won over the vocal objections of Sotomayor. And last, but certainly not least, is Britt Grant. Britt is the probably the first judge named Britt. It's a generational thing, I guess. Um, Britt, uh, who I'll admit is a friend, actually so is Andy and, and Patrick are friends. Uh, Britt was appointed to the 11th Circuit in Georgia. She recently served in the Georgia Supreme Court. Uh, very young appointee. She worked uh, arguing cases for the state of Georgia before that was a lawyer in Washington, D.C. Also got on the radar of President Trump for being one of the great young judges of her generation at the state level and already is moving up into the federal courts and maybe the Supreme Court. But the two biggest names to keep an eye on are these two. On the left, you have Amy Coney Barrett, formerly a professor at Notre Dame, now on the U.S. Court of Appeals for the Seventh Circuit. And on the right is Naomi Rao, who currently is President Trump's regulatory czar, maybe soon on the D.C. Circuit. Has anybody heard of Judge Amy Coney Barrett? At her confirmation hearing uh, for her judge on the Seventh Circuit, uh, Amy Coney Barrett, like I said, is at Notre Dame. She's a, 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 a strong Catholic, um, has a large family, an adopted child. They go to um, Catholic schools. Diane Feinstein raked her over the coals for her Catholic beliefs, said, I think the line was, I, she says something like, I fear the dogma lives strongly within you, which sounds like a line out of Star Wars, actually. But it was really, 
The really impressive thing about Judge Barrett was the way she kept cool under pressure. She was not a front runner for the US Supreme Court until that moment and the way she stood up very proudly to, um, to Senator Feinstein. Um, and her bravery and her performance in that hearing immediately rocketed her to the front of the Supreme Court list by all observers in Washington, D.C. She's doing a good job on the Seventh Circuit, as you mentioned. Um, but she is probably the front runner for the next vacant seat. On her right is Professor Naomi Rao. Anybody heard of her? You will. Uh, her confirmation hearing for the D.C. Circuit is set for February 5th. Uh, Naomi is a friend of mine. I actually replaced her at Mason. She founded the program I now run, the Center for the Study of the Administrative State. People, when I'm introduced, they often call it the Center for the Administrative State. I say, no, 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 we're not for it. We just study it. Um, she has been President Trump's regulatory czar. She's nominated to the D.C. Circuit. She's done a great, great job on regulatory oversight. And I think if she gets confirmed, she too will be one of the, the top two or three candidates for the next Supreme Court seat. And who would that seat be vacated, vacated by? Any guesses? Anybody? Maybe her? A lot of attention is focused on Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg, a Clinton appointee. Um, if you haven't heard of Justice Ginsburg, she's easy to find. There's books about her. There's even a new movie about her. Um, but Justice Ginsburg, uh, as the senior most um, Democratic appointee on the Supreme Court, has had really since about 2009 the leading liberal voice on the Supreme Court. Um, she's overcome all manner of health ailments. I mean, it's very impressive the way she's been able to do her work on the court and stay on the court, overcoming cancer. She just recently had surgery for a lung cancer, um, and she's, she's recovering. But just of necessity, given her age and her health uh, condition, most eyes are focused on her as the next, uh, as the next person to, to leave the court. But we shouldn't focus exclusively on her. Here's two more people to consider, not those two, these two. Justice Clarence Thomas and Justice Samuel Alito. It's hard to believe, but Justice Thomas has now been on the court for, well, since 1991, so for 25 years. Justice Thomas, uh, he, he loves what he does, but it's pretty clear he doesn't live to be on the Supreme Court. He likes his life outside of the Supreme Court. He likes his privacy. He likes roaming the country in an RV. The only thing I have against him is that he likes Nebraska football and is an Iowan. I can't take that. It's like the one thing Justice Thomas gets wrong. But it's not hard to imagine if Justice Ginsburg um, is on the court at the end of the year, it's not hard to imagine Justice Thomas voluntarily retiring in order to give President Trump a chance to name his successor, especially if uh, his former clerk Naomi Rao is a possible candidate. That said, I will say some wonder if Justice Alito will be the next retiree, including um, some of my friends inside the Justice Department who try to think about these things. Justice Alito, like Thomas, does not live to be on the court. Uh, he's a very private person. He likes being back home uh, near Philadelphia. And while there hasn't been any public rumblings on this yet, I think it's just worth keeping an eye. He's already served on the court for more than a decade. And just as David Souter surprised a lot of people when he retired in perfect health to go back to New Hampshire 10 years ago, it's not hard for just to imagine Justice Alito taking the Souter option and retiring at a young age in good health to head back to spend more time with family. Okay, so what is, the, and I know I'm up on time, so I'll be pretty quick. What might change at the Supreme Court as the people change? Well, a few things. We've already seen movement on the public sector unions issue. 
The Supreme Court has started uh, in the most recent case called Janus to declare that public sector unions violate the First Amendment when they mandate that all employees turn over dues to pay for public advocacy that the members disagree with. The Supreme Court struck that down. There's now follow-up cases to see, well, how can the union members collect their money back? What are the procedures that the unions have to go through before they collect money and spend it? On, on progressive advocacy. So that's one major issue that's already changed. The next issue to keep an eye on is affirmative action. You may have heard of the case challenging Harvard's admissions policies, um, where they're discriminating against Asians, uh, Asian Americans. That might be the next big Supreme Court case on affirmative action. And the departure of Justice Kennedy and his replacement by Kavanaugh is going to make a big difference. Other issues, uh, religious liberty. Uh, the administrative state already mentioned Kavanaugh and Gorsuch are especially focused on that. And then finally, I say judicial restraint. And what I mean is the current court, especially with the departure of Justice Kennedy, I suspect will be much less interested in expanding rights to abortion, um, expanding uh, rights to same-sex marriage. I'm not confident they will roll back those rights. I think, I am confident that they will stop the expansion of those rights. Um, and I wrote about this a little bit last summer at the Weekly Standard before it closed. I wrote a piece called The Rage at the End of Justice Kennedy's Camelot. And I said, I think it was right around the time of our Board of Overseers meeting, I said, the outrage, the, 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 the outrage that you saw at Kennedy's retirement and Kavanaugh's nomination, it was being phrased in terms of Kavanaugh's going to you know, end the right to abortion, Kavanaugh's going to end same-sex marriage. I really find it hard to believe that the, even the current Supreme Court would do anything like that, especially on same-sex marriage, but also on abortion. What I really think the left's outrage uh, reflected was the end of a Camelot era in which Justice Kennedy was always guaranteed to move things in a certain direction forward on those issues. That's gone, and even freezing things in place has caused uh, critics on the left to really go over the top in their, in their, their, their response. What's the response been? Well, claims that they want to impeach Judge Kavanaugh for what they say are lies at his confirmation hearing, proposals for the next president and the next Democratic Congress to add three, five, or more new seats to the Supreme Court. Really weird thing to suggest when you're out of power, when you don't have control of Congress and the president say, you know, court packing would be a good idea. Like, odd that they would put that in President Trump's ear, but they did. Um, but I think it's, we should take this seriously, that the next Democratic Congress, next Democratic president may well try to just add seats to the Supreme Court in the way that Franklin Roosevelt uh, threatened to do in the 1930s. But just in general, you're going to see a big delegitimization of the Supreme Court. This is already starting. You see it among journalists like Ron Brownstein. You also see it among advocates saying that the Supreme Court, as it's currently made up, is not nearly as reflective of the American um, public any, as, it, as it should be, either in terms of demographics or in terms of policy positions. And you're seeing this sort of creeping effort to preemptively delegitimize whatever it is that the Supreme Court is about to do in a way that we used to see almost on the right, you know, decades and decades ago when there were impeach Earl Warren signs on the side of the highway, or even in the 90s when conservatives, um, especially Christian conservatives, were, were, were denouncing the Supreme Court uh, as illegitimate in response to its abortion cases. We're now seeing that on the left. What we're also seeing on the left is a rediscovery of federalism. You see, the Supreme Court only decides cases that arise under federal law and that come up through the federal courts. To the extent the left is, is, is no longer confident that they have a hospitable audience on the Supreme Court, they will try to bring more and more cases in state courts under state law. 
So for example, in my home state of Iowa, there are some new restrictions on abortion that were legislated. Planned Parenthood didn't sue in federal court. They didn't invoke the US Constitution. They sued in Iowa court invoking the Iowa Constitution. And so you're going to see a shift in energy from the left redirected, at least for now, towards state courts and state constitutions. I mean, I'm all for federalism, and I highly recommend Judge Jeffrey Sutton's recent book on federalism and constitutionalism. I think it's a good thing. I'm very glad the left is waking up to it you know, for whatever reason. And there you have it. That's the state of the Roberts court. Like I said, the man to watch is Chief Justice John Roberts. But the really interesting in the long term, the really interesting divide is between the two men I started with, Judge Kavanaugh, Justice Kavanaugh and Justice Gorsuch. Kavanaugh, I think, is best understood in the Scalia line of, uh, of being an originalist, focusing on constitutional text, but being a little bit slower to overturn precedent or declaring you know, federal agencies unconstitutional. Judge Gorsuch, in his own writings, first in the lower courts and even his early writings on the Supreme Court, indicate he may be closer to Justice Thomas in energetically overturning precedents that he thinks are inconsistent with constitutional text. Legal nerds call this the difference between judicial restraint and judicial engagement. Judicial restraint, not wanting to strike down precedents. Judicial engagement, saying we should engage in the, the work of overturning precedents. That, in the long run, is going to be the most interesting divide in the court. And I will say, on questions of the administrative state, the most important majority, I think, is going to be Roberts with Kavanaugh, Alito, Kagan, and Breyer. That seems to be the centrist coalition on rolling back judicial deference to agencies. Um, Gorsuch and Thomas would no doubt join those majorities, but I think Roberts is going to try to reach out to these two justices as much as he can to build a 7-2 consensus. Anyway, thank you again so much for having me here, saving me the work of, of, of shoveling my driveway, and I'm happy to answer any questions that you might have. Thank you. For more podcasts from the Hoover Institution, please visit hoover.org or Hoover's channels on all major podcast platforms, including Apple, Google, Podbean, Stitcher, SoundCloud, and Spotify. I'm Chris Dower for the Hoover Institution. Thanks for listening. <laughs>